Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of James chapter 3. James chapter 3 will be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. The blob was not subtle. You guys remember the movie The Blob, right? There have been a few of them, I guess. I haven't seen them. I'm aware of the one from the 50s. You know, that 1950s film, as the one site puts it, about a growing corrosive alien amoeba that crashes from outer space in a meteorite and engulfs and dissolves citizens in the small community of Downington, Pennsylvania. That one. Well, seen it or not, seen it or not, that's a scary movie, and you know it. The blob is big. The blob is imposing. The blob is foreign to our planet. The more it eats, the more dangerous it gets, and you can tell because it keeps getting bigger. The blob was not subtle. Well, I've titled this morning's sermon, The Tongue. The Tongue, which sounds either like the most boring movie ever or the scariest movie ever. And that's part of its thing. It sounds boring because tongues are subtle. They're not big but small. They're not foreign but familiar, right even under your nose. But of course, size means nothing for safety. Small things take big things down every day. Diseases, black widow spiders, a drop of venom can take down an elephant. So what if I told you that that tongue in your mouth is one of those things, that it is filled with deadly poison. To quote Reading Rainbow, 80s kids, you don't have to take my word for it. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, is one of the scariest passages in the Bible if you'll hear it and believe it. And it's about one of the smallest things on our bodies, the tongue. James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? 
neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Pastoral, friendly, vivid, and scary. Even the monsters we think up for TV aren't this scary. Of course, the tongue here is a figure of speech for speech itself, the words that come out of our mouths. James writes with vivid force intended to shock us into reality, and we need it. In our day, we give careful thought to the things that we put in our mouths. Kale, (laughs) gluten, hamburger helper. But it's interesting that after Jesus comes, the only thing we're really told to do with food is basically take up and eat. Not that we shouldn't care about what we eat, but perhaps we have cared too much or a not proper proportion to other things. Hear this from Jesus, Matthew 15, 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And so it turns out that yes, some food we put in our bodies is scary, but what comes out of our mouth is very much more so. For it is not what we eat, but what we speak that is of true consequence. It is not the food we make for our tongue, but the words that we make with our tongue that matter the most. And we do not ponder our words carefully enough for all of the words that we say in a day. We mostly wing it. I mostly wing it. So we should be more thoughtful, which is why we're here this morning. James, Jesus' brother, pondered and thought carefully about what Jesus had said about the tongue. And now we'll ponder what James said about the tongue. Because more important than finding out how to get away from a giant alien amoeba is finding out how to get along with the subtle but deadly instrument that each of us keeps within our very mouths. So here's our outline. First, we'll consider one key to the whole body. And then we'll consider four metaphors for the mouth. One key for the whole body and four metaphors for the mouth. And may the spirit scare us and in so doing sanctify us by his word as we do. Verses one and two, there James reveals a secret, one key to the whole body and it's the tongue. James, as we've said in this series to date, isn't just writing to this church about a variety of important Christian living issues for individual Christians. He is writing to a church about their issues as they work out together the Christian life. Remember that James closes his book by saying this in chapter 5, verse 19. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James is concerned for his readers. He's concerned about wandering. Elsewhere translated, deceived, deception. In the first chapter, James told us one way that we deceive ourselves. 126, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious is worthless. He deceives his heart by not bridling his tongue, which is to say our unbridled tongues actually function to fool us and to ruin 
us. No surprise then that as we arrive at James chapter 3, we get now a tour de force on the tongue. Our passage today might be the Bible's easiest passage to nail down in terms of topics. The tongue. Except for verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It seems to not fit with the rest, although teaching has to do with speaking. It seemed like a nice package of illustrations and exhortations concerning the tongue, but this is one uh, instruction concerning teachers. Is this whole section about teachers? I think that the teaching ministry of the church is of concern to James and is one of the occasions for his writing, which is a launch pad for a general instruction on the tongue for all of us. James is concerned about the teaching ministry of the church. Apparently, some who want to teach should not teach, and some who are teaching should stop teaching. It may be that bad teachers are behind some of the trouble that it appears James writes to address. In 3.13, starting right after the end of our section today, this might speak of present or aspiring teachers when he asks, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have a bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So those who teach are called to a particular standard. And why are such qualified teachers important? Well, if there is problem with speech in the church, then the fix starts with the teachers. In fact, the problem might go back to the teachers and their loose tongues. Teachers are to the church as, well, tongues are to the body. And so the man who teaches must be a match for the task. Teaching by its nature is a promotion of truth with words. And so one cannot promote the truth with his mouth, but then undermine it in the daily course of his life with the same mouth. It's for this reason that God will judge those who teach more strictly. They're saying more words and they're on the hook for all of it. For the teacher and for his hearers, because he's not writing to teachers, he's writing to you. For the teacher and for his hearers, there is much at stake. And for this reason, the role should not be pursued or granted hastily, but with great caution. Teaching in the ancient world was a position of great esteem. Many would seek the role, including many new converts. In our day, my vocation, the, the job of pastoring, of teaching, particularly the Bible, is not an esteemed, allotted, or appraised vocation or role. But in the context of the ancient world, rabbis, teachers, were who you wanted to be if you had um, aspirations for greatness, if you will. New converts, no doubt, would seek the role of teacher. And James was making sure that everyone understood the kind of man that was required for the role. In fact, while Paul gives a list of qualifications in his writings, in a sense, if what James says about the tongue is true, then James sort of boils his qualifications, although they're not technically qualifications, but he sort of does boil it down to one. Verse two, if we, we all stumble in many ways, he writes, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. Teachers will sin and stumble in many ways. That's how I take this, like every human being and Christian. But they should possess a unique maturity with their words. 
And not just words in their teaching, but words in the course of everyday life. He isn't saying that teachers or anyone can be perfect. He says we all stumble in many ways. He is offering, I take it, as a matter of principle, that the tongue is the master key to the body. And speech is the master key to life. And so those who teach must have a good handle on the key to the whole operation of life. If someone can control their speech, not only do they have a capacity because of self-discipline to control the rest of the body, I think James is saying that they actually have control of the rest of the body because that's how tightly our speech is intertwined with our hearts. And if you think about this, this is true in our experience. The men and women in your life that are the most godly, that you esteem and respect the most, that are the most like Christ, are no doubt the very same people that reflect godliness in their speech and control in their speech. And the opposite is true as well. And it doesn't matter if they're a talker or not. Talking does and can, I can attest to this, create more occasion for sin. Scripture and experience say so. What matters is the virtue in what one says or doesn't say. The spiritual capacity to say what must be said in the proper manner at the right time. And the spiritual capacity to restrain oneself from saying certain things when they must not be said. And saying things that must not be said. As the teachers are the key to the body of Christ, we could say, so the tongue is the key to our bodies. And that's why teachers are judged more strictly. Well, from here, the rest of James's words are carefully written to help us, all of us, not stumble in what we say, to help our whole Christian life along to maturity. James's concern isn't merely for orderly church life, but for life itself in the church, that's what is at stake in the deception that can come about through loose speaking. And so he needs to elaborate, he needs to illustrate, he needs to communicate the power, the deceptive power, the deceptive danger, and the deceptive challenge that is the tongue, along with its true stakes. Teachers are few, but they shape the entire life of the church. James has addressed that, and now James addresses the tongue. Tongues are small, but their words give shape to the entire life of the Christian And so with a full canvas and a fresh set of paints, this is where James turns his attention now. And by way of disclaimer, there are no happy little trees in this painting. Verses 3 through 12, four metaphors for the mouth. Four metaphors for the mouth. The first metaphor shows us that the tongue is deceptively powerful. It does not look it that it is deceptively powerful. First image we'll use is ships, verses three through five. And really he uses two images to make the same point, ships are the second. I'm picking one. Let's read three through five. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. Horses. This is the animal from which we get horsepower. 
Very strong animals, four legs. You might have seen one on a Western or a beer commercial. I actually don't remember seeing a horse in my life with the exception of a pony in fifth grade that I rode. That I confess to you, I rode a pony in fifth grade, I guess. Um, I lived in Louisville for years, never saw a horse, but we know horses. Horses are powerful and they, are literally, they literally powered the ancient world. They powered the ancient world at the direction of men who bridled them. A horse on its own could pretty much go wherever it wanted. But with a bit, even a very small person, 90 pound person, could make that horse take them wherever he or she wanted. Even into the face of an armed enemy. And horses combined could carry incredible weight. Horses powered the ancient world. And that's what tongues are like. And the point is not yet, at least, that tongues are any trouble, although we know we'll get there. It's simply that they're immensely influential, disproportionate with their size. Tongues are as bits are to horses. But ships are an even more dramatic image, or at least a different one. Look at the ships, he says. They're so large and they're driven by strong winds. James is grabbing very easy pictures from the everyday life of his church readers as a good pastor. But similar to horses, they are guided by something surprisingly small. A very small rudder, he says. Power out of proportion to its size. And if I were asked to design a boat today, I would get a number of things right. I promise you, I would forget the rudder. I don't care how much power I put in that boat or how many missiles I put on that boat or how much I had the science of the shape of the boat and its materials right, the boat wouldn't be able to steer anywhere. The rudder is that assuming, it's that easy at least for me to forget, but it is there and it guides every ship. Ships, if you haven't noticed, are completely out of hand in our own day. I don't know what's more amazing, how they built very large ships in James's day without the technology we have or the technology that allows us to build the kinds of very, very large ships that we have now. The Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier is the biggest, the baddest, and the best aircraft carrier that we make. And even just reading about the thing and the history of aircraft carriers is fascinating. It's not driven by strong winds, but by two nuclear reactors powering four 30-ton props, propelling a ship of over 1,000 feet and 100,000 tons, including its weapons, up to 90 aircraft and 4,500 crew. And what kind of advanced technology guides this ship, this aircraft carrier? There's been a lot of technological development, even within the history of aircraft carriers, what technology have we cooked up with which to guide and steer this great ship? A very small rudder. Of course, it's the size of a house. But relatively speaking, it's a very small rudder, and it works the same way. And the issue is that of contrast. One thing that is very small that controls something that is very large, and that's the tongue. It's something that's very small, and what we do with it controls our very life. Words that we form with our tongues, even very simple words, powerfully guide 
our lives. With the words, I accept, you can take a job that will take you across the country or across the world. With the words, I do, you begin a marriage that changes the course of your life. With the words, let's make a baby, you can practically create life. Words are powerful guides. And now in verse 4, James makes explicit what is obvious. Rudders guide ships, but rudders, James says, are directed by something themselves. They're directed by the will of the pilot. And so tongues and the words they form guide our lives, but tongues themselves are directed by the will of their pilot, which is you and which is me. So that's the first metaphor. Great ships guided by small rudders. The tongue is more powerful than it appears. Now another image, verses 5 and 6. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, James writes. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Our second metaphor for the mouth is is fire. A small rudder is deceptively powerful and a fire is deceptively dangerous. So too is the tongue. Growing up in northern Illinois, I lived in in a subdivision on the side of town on a lot that was carved out of the woods. And every weekend through the fall, I miss this, we would rake the whole thing. I never thought I would miss it. We'd rake the yard, we'd put piles and piles of dead leaves onto giant tarps, pull them together, bundle them to make one giant pile, and we'd light the whole thing on fire. And you could watch it, smell it, and hear the leaves burn right there in the middle of the woods. And growing up in that kind of a spot, of the country, there were always stories of the kinds of things that went on in the large fields behind some friends' houses, like one friend who filled a washer with gasoline and lit a fuse so many, many yards away for what must have been an epic backyard firework. Or another friend gathered dead, dried-up Christmas trees after the holidays for a massive bonfire in the field behind his house. But unless you're Paul Mathis, you can't get away with that kind of stuff here. I asked him if I could say that, and he said, sure. And then he started telling me fire stories, which is great. Just go figure, Paul Mathis. Now, this took a bit of getting used to when I migrated here about five and a half years ago. During the wrong time of year, a pile of burning leaves, if you could even find them, could create a pile of burning neighborhoods. You might remember the lost, lost conscious, if I'm saying that right, fire. At 1 p.m. on June 26, 2011, In the Hamez, a tree fell on a power line, which caused a spark, which caused a small fire, which caused a very large fire. By the close of the day, 43,000 acres were burned, which is an average of an acre a second across the day, apparently. Incredible. Strong winds pushed this fire A month later, when it was extinguished, it claimed 150,000 acres of Pueblo and Forest Service land, even at one point threatening Los Alamos National Labs. And all of us, at least I was, my imagination was racing as to what that would mean. Uh, But it was fine. James, here's the point, wants us to think about how fires 
begin. How they start. How very great fires that consume that much space get their ignition. And it's with a very small fire, even a spark. They all start small. That, James says, is the danger of the tongue. But that's not what he's saying here merely. For so far, we have not talked about intention. We have not talked about purpose. So a tree falling on a power line is not malicious. Some regional fires start with a controlled burn that then gets out of control. Some fires start with tomfoolery. My dad in rural Gagetown, Michigan, apparently... Uh, when he was a young boy, was playing with fire with some buddies in the field where they shot rats. And they lit the thing on fire. Uh, an entire field about the size of the adjacent town was burned down. And uh, it wasn't much longer that they built a golf course there that is there to this day. And he makes claim to it. <laughs> so that's, that's tomfoolery. Some fires get out of control from foolishness. Some fires start from inattention, like an unattended campfire inattention. How about this? I had a friend who burned his house down as a kid. He wanted to eat a funnel cake. His dad was out, so he stuck a funnel cake on the stove or whatever you do with it, turned the thing on, went into the family room, forgot about it, fell asleep on the couch, and woke up to his house burning down. He escaped, called his dad with the neighbor's phone, and told his dad what happened. That inattention started with a funnel cake. Many of our problems with words are exactly this way. They're good words that go wrong. They're foolish words that go very wrong. And they're inattentive words that go wrong and cause a world of trouble. But there is another way that great fires get their spark. And this one is much closer, if not in the heart of the reason that James is writing. And that's arson. Arson. The crime defined as of intentionally, deliberately, and maliciously setting fire to buildings, wildland areas, dumpsters, vehicles, or other property with the intent to cause damage. When I hear about an instance of arson, I always say to myself, now how evil would a person have to be to do that? And James is saying, it's actually precisely what we do to one another with our words. But we're worse, for the objects of our evil words aren't dumpsters or property but people made in the image of God. Here are some creative arsonist techniques that we use. You only have to read through the Proverbs to dig them up. Gossip. Gossip. Using words veiled in acceptable decorum to spread cruel and often untrue things about someone else, to bring them down. Proverbs 18.8. The words of a whisperer are like malicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body. Or slander, using words to more directly destroy a person. Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Or how about flattery? It's been said that if gossip is saying behind someone's back what you would never say to their face, then flattery is saying to their face what you would never say behind their back. That's good. And there's deceit. Using words to portray reality as something other than what it really is in order to get something that you want. A job, a deal, a reputation, influence, you name it. 
Proverbs 12, 19 through 22. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. There's crass speech, making with our words beautiful, appear beautiful what is ugly, and what is ugly appear beautiful. And who can forget arrogant boasting, using words to make oneself appear great. Proverbs 18, 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Now, even as I wrote this sermon, I asked myself maybe three times, am I overstating the problem here? Am I being too serious or hard about this matter? It's just a tongue, just words. I don't want to be too hard on all these good people that I like. And then I would look down at the Bible and be fully convinced that I was not being harsh enough. Just look at this. You see, James says, yes, the tongue is small. It's small and unassuming. But in the tongue is a whole world of unrighteousness. The tongue commands every evil conceivable by the heart of man. In fact, it appoints itself, this is what it means, it appoints itself as the funnel through which the rest of the body's sins will be executed. Our other sins use the tongue to conduct their business. Parts of the body that want things use the tongue to get the things that they want. We often want to explain the things that go down in our lives, the fires around us or in us, by spontaneous combustion. And there is a such thing. Sometimes things just break down and go wrong and um, it may not be owing to your sin or a sin that you've, a sin of neglect or of any kind. Things can erupt. But this explanation proves very convenient for us when things appeared just to have erupted. Often enough, we threw down the match. We lit the first flame. We may even have gone ahead to pour out gasoline to prepare for the fire that we hoped would be unleashed. But as Jesus told us in Matthew 15, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And Jesus says in Luke 6, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. That's the connection between our words and who we are. Now, to be clear, we are not all equally evil with our tongues, but our tongues are all equally capable of evil, and we all have Adam's same heart. There is a world of unrighteousness in our mouths. And our mouths, our tongues, can create a world of trouble. The tongue is small, but it can stain the whole body, it says. It's small, but it can stain the whole body. It can spoil you. It's the same word used in chapter 126. We're to be unstained from the world. Well, this is a stain that comes from within us. The tongue is a vehicle for the stain. The tongue is small, but not only can it stain the whole body, it can set on fire, he says, the entire course of life. The entire course of life. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And that's true. And so this whole body and whole life effect 
that James is talking about can be seen. And it can be seen in our church relationships. Consider the types of arson going on among James's readers in chapter 4, verse 1. He writes this. This may be background to why he's talking about the tongue. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see the heart and what it wants. The pilot's desires, his will and the tongue, the rudder and the trouble it causes. Verse 11 of chapter 4, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge? Your neighbor. Anger and coveting and pride in the heart leading believers to quarrel and fight, to speak evil, and what he's saying here about judgment, to stand in the place of God and issue condemnation for sin different than distinguishing between sin and discernment. In Star Wars, there's Darth Vader and then there's the Emperor. I think that's how it goes. So what stands behind the tongue and its fire? What's the bad guy behind the bad guy? Where does the tongue get its fire? You may feel taken by Uh, your tongue at times. How did I say that? Uh, We're not going to externalize the problem. The problem is our wills as the pilots. And yet the tongue has an initial flame that lights it afire. There is a sinister force at work to ruin us and fool us with our own tongues. The answer is, one answer could be sin. And it's a true answer as we're all born in Adam, sinners with his problems, sinners with his sin. But the answer that James gives is interesting. The tongue is, verse 6, set on a fire by hell. Where did the tongue's fire come from? It came from hell, the pit. The word used here is Gehenna. It's a geographical reference. Reference would be the valley below Jerusalem. It's where the Moabites sacrificed their children, an evil place. And it's where trash would be burned in the day of this writing. Jesus used the word about a dozen times for the place of final condemnation and James uses it here as the source for the fire of the tongue. In other words, Satan is the source for the fire of the tongue. Satan knows the tongue is the master key to your life better than you do and he hates God and he hates you and everyone in your life because we all bear God's image and he is scheming, always scheming for ways to direct our tongues to destroy our lives and set our lives ablaze with the things we say and therefore to set ablaze those who are in range. He is a master arsonist and make no mistake, your tongue is his master target. If you can focus on one thing in your Christian life, To get control over, focus on the tongue, many other things will follow with it. It all starts with Satan's hellish hatred toward God and you. Tongues are deceptive. They are more powerful than they look and they are more dangerous than they look. But they're different than some dangerous things. Some things that are of a danger, we just need to know are there and then we can steer around them or get away or run away or whatever. Kill it. But not so with the tongue. 
Next image conveys that the tongue is also deceptive in its challenge. It's harder to deal with than it appears. Third metaphor for the mouth, beasts, verses 7 through 8. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is ridiculous the kind of ships that we put on water these days. And only more ridiculous is the kind of things that we can get animals to do for us. Some animals naturally tolerate human presence or even obey us with a little bit of work. Many animals naturally ignore humans or eat humans. But to one degree or another, any animal can be tamed. Beasts, for example, when a lion tamer aims a four-legged chair at a, at a lion. You ever seen one of these pictures? Why is he doing that? Well, the lion focuses on all four legs of the chair and gets confused. Isn't that good? So keep a, keep a chair with you when you're out in the woods, in the bush. And we've learned, you know, we've studied the psychology of animals and we've tried to figure out how to get them to go along with us and people have done a decently good job. Or birds, as recently as the 1980s, carrier pigeons were used by two hospitals in France to carry specimens from one hospital to another. So a homing pigeon, a carrier pigeon, has some wicked thing going on inside itself that we don't really understand. There's iron on its beak. They think it has some kind of compass and that it, can, it has some sense of map uh, by understanding the Earth's magnetic field. I don't know how it works. But no matter where you take these things, they can fly. They've been traced as flying up to 1,800 miles to get back to the exact same spot. Um, so we don't know how they work, but we can train them even to carry an amount of weight for us from one place to another. In World War I and II, they were used to save lives on the beaches of Normandy. And that invasion, uh, carrier pigeons were used to transport messages when walkie-talkies, radio, excuse me, was too risky. And reptiles, I'm not sure uh, what James had in mind, but I'm sure they tamed reptiles and that some tamed reptiles. I looked up... Um, uh, snake charming, you see those, you know, snakes obeying the guy's flute or whatever? That's a fraud. The snakes are, the snakes are fatigued, so they won't attack. Sometimes their fangs are taken out, and sometimes their mouths are even sewn shut. Um, it's a trick. But in any case, reptiles can, some, be tamed. And sea creatures, even killer whales, consider this, can be led by humans to perform for an audience of five- and six-year-old boys and girls. Killer whales. It is difficult, sometimes very difficult, to tame an animal. No human being can tame the tongue, James says. For all of our studying and technology and years, no human being, he says, can tame the tongue. The word of God is as true today as it was then. Now, why would James tell us this if there's nothing we can do about it? Well, it's not exactly true that we can't do anything about it. No human being, it's true, can ultimately fix the problem of the tongue because the tongue is tied to the heart. And even in our conversion, even after the new birth, we are not perfectly, we are not perfected until the new creation. But knowing the danger of the tongue can prevent, protect us from unrestrained wickedness with it. So if you're convinced that your words can stain your whole body and set on fire the whole course of your life, then you're in a better place now than where you were when you walked in. Knowing 
how dangerous the tongue is, is part of what James is after. He is after in part to scare us with its power and danger and challenge. So yes, the tongues are more powerful and more dangerous and more challenging than they look. Now a final metaphor. Tongues are like springs. Springs. Springs capture the gist of a number of images here. Verses 8 through 12, the tongue, James says, is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce frigs? Neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. And there James goes again quoting his brother Jesus who said, you will will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? You'll know them by their fruits, Jesus said. And in what James writes, he is doing a few things. He affirms, this is an affirmation of the preciousness, the importance and the value and the potential of the tongue. With it, we can bless our Lord and Father. And what what is a greater privilege than to bless the God who made us with the tongue that he gave us for it. But James also reinforces our own struggle with it. For on one day we bless the Lord with words and on the next we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. There is a contradiction at the heart of the human being. And in this way, tongues are not only deceitful in their power, their danger and challenge, they're also, we could say, instruments of self Deception. They're an instrument of self-deception. Remember what we read from James 1.26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but he deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Talking is one way we deceive ourselves. We say things we don't mean in order to make others and even ourselves believe that those things are true. And we deceive ourselves. It is true that Jesus was distinguishing between those who were his and those who were not when he talked about figs and thistles. James does the same in a way. I mean, we should look at what comes out of our mouth and try to discern whether we are of one spring or another. But James is writing to Christians. He is writing to those whom he calls brothers. Before he calls them to be doers of the word, he does remind them that they were born of the word of God. And so be encouraged. We don't want to press the spring imagery too far to the wall so that if you've ever cursed a person or said anything evil with your mouth, it is not true that you can't also bless the Lord with your tongue and you can't also know that you're a Christian. I love this. James says tenderly in verse 10, my brothers, these things ought not to be, which means we can actually grow here. He's writing to them tenderly as a pastor to help them, to shepherd them in their use of their tongue. Yes, he writes to scare us. He wants us to believe that the tongue is more powerful, dangerous, and challenging than we have perceived because of its size. But he also writes to sanctify us. We are those born of the word, and so it doesn't have to be that our speech is so nastily and cruelly and obnoxiously and hypocritically divided. 
we can grow in the exercise of words with our tongue. One thing James doesn't do so clearly is right to save us. He scares us and sanctifies us, but he does not write to save us. He writes to those who are saved from the penalty and the power of their sins, of the mouth. But no doubt there are some in the, in the hearing of this message who themselves are not saved, who feel overtaken, enslaved by the tongue and their passions that they speak from. And maybe you're a verbal arson this morning and it's as if you finally got caught, convicted this morning of verbal arson. And if you're honest, you have animals in your house that are more obedient than your own tongue. So what shall we say to you? Well, here's what we'd say. There is another thing in the universe that is more powerful than it looks. And it's a cross where hung the Son of God. In every earthly way, Jesus Christ was a small-time guy. His family was of small means so that he was born among animals. He grew up in a small town, rural Nazareth. He was a carpenter until age 30 when he began to say that he was God's son sent from heaven to save the world from their sins. And then he was crucified, surrounded by crowds yelling with their mouths two words, crucify him. Abandoned by his own disciples who denied with their mouths that they knew him. And on that cross, he said a number of small and simple phrases. Phrases that function as a kind of rudder for the history of the world. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For he was bearing the sins of the world. It's our sins, the wrath of God. Father, forgive them for even as he died. For those who yelled crucify him, he desired for their salvation. And then it is finished for Jesus obeyed and thought deed and word perfectly all the way to the end. He obeyed his father's will. And to some, this story of the cross does make for the most boring story ever. But what may sound like a non-event to the world was really the rudder of history, God's son paying for the sins of sinners. And so we can say with the apostle Paul, what we read in 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's weakness, it's small. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So not only is the cross more powerful than it looks, it is also more destructive than it looks, taking with it sin and Satan and hell even as God takes our sin away by it. So agree with God's word. If the tongue is a fire and that you're a verbal arsonist, a sinner, it's full of evil poison and you've been largely okay with that, especially when it felt good. As the tongue is familiar and comfortable, so sin has been in our lives before coming to Christ and in yours. And then confess this small and foolish looking Christ as your very great savior from sin. Maybe he has been familiar to you as well, too familiar. But that doesn't mean you've understood him or believed in him. So confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Bible says, that when you cast yourself on him, hopeless and helpless as your only hope, you'll be saved. And then join the rest of us in looking at this small book, which is, well, sort of like a sword a scalpel even, something very small but very sharp that has a great and powerful effect on the life of the one 
who believes it and was born by it. Back to the blob. There was no redeeming the blob. No redeeming the blob. There was only, I think, fire extinguishers and dropping the blob off in the Arctic. Be frozen forever. You couldn't shoot it because it was a blob. But there is redemption for the tongue, and more precisely for sinners who sin in their speech with it. So let's now, with the great privilege that we have to pray to God and to use our mouths to do so, or I'll use mine, you listen, let's bless God in prayer. Father, we pray that our words would be undivided in their purpose to bless you and the people made in your image. We confess that our hearts are filled with a world of unrighteousness and our tongues execute on our hearts desires so that we say things that are cruel and mean. Some of us in more creative and safe sounding ways, more sanitized ways, but we are sinners with the tongue because we are sinners in the heart and we confess our great need for forgiveness. Father, as we cast ourselves on Christ, we pray that our church would be a heavenly place in a world of hellish words. And Father, I pray that since this starts with those who teach the word, men who stumble as I do in many ways and with my tongue, that you would help me to pray and mean the Psalms, Psalm 119 as we all pray it. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.